Womanjika, Hari Mai, welcome everyone to the Trans-Tasman uh, podcast. My name is Matt and along with uh, Claire, uh, we've been teaming up in creating space for conversations between leaders uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand and Australia. Um, today we're spotlighting actually uh, a leader based here in Melbourne, Kai Lofgren, uh, who is the head of strategy at Small Giants Academy. And he's also uh, leads the Academy's strategy around education and storytelling initiatives, including the Impact Safari program and the master mastery of business and empathy. Kai previously worked across Small Giants family office, including with organizations like Impact Investment Group, the School of Life uh, Australia, and Dumbo Feather Magazine. And he is a director at Type Human, exploring how emerging technology is affecting human dignity and public life. And as you can see, he's, he's got lots of, lots of strings to his bow. Uh, he also has a master's uh, of economic history along with a bachelor of engineering and a bachelor of arts and has previously worked with engineers without borders and engineers Australia. He's also connected to the Regen Melbourne uh, initiative in collaboration with another number of other key conveners, um, which is an evolving um, uh, space and, and collaboration. Uh, in Melbourne that's linked to donor economics. So Kaya, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us in this conversation. And uh, I'm just going to kick us off with, I guess, maybe some reflections on, um, in conversation, we've talked about this idea that 2020 has really encouraged us to question our fundamental assumptions on life, on, on business, um, in, in so, on so many things. But uh, yeah, curious to hear your initial thoughts and, and welcome again. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Uh, it's it feels like um, it feels like it's been a a wild ride over the last eighteen months, and um, not a bad time to do a bit of stock take. I think um, thinking about the impacts of last year and the continued impacts on largely our economic system. I think that's what I've been thinking about, and in that context, specifically thinking about you know what are the assumptions that sit under the surface of the system that we're living in that we just simply don't think about or question uh, or haven't been questioning um, for a long time. And for me, there are sort of a number that, that keep coming up again and again that were reinforced by the experiences of last year. And the first one, which I think everybody feels intuitively, but perhaps um, aren't necessarily conscious of or weren't until last year, is this fundamental idea in our, in our system that human beings, us, uh, separate from and in control of the natural world. And I think that's something that is, is sort of embedded in, in the systems that we live in. You know, the environment, environmental impacts, climate impacts are seen as an externality to the systems that we're in. Um, they're kind of something that perhaps should be managed, but it's kind of secondary to the idea of human prosperity. And I think that came sort of crashing home with the pandemic, with the realization that, you know, we're absolutely not in control of our natural environment and we're not separate from it in any way. Um, so I think this, you know, the climate emergency and the pandemic and living through this time, um, it sort of forces us to challenge that fundamental assumption that I think sits in our system. And I know, I mean, I know that's something you have written and spoken a lot about as well, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, and it does make us question, you know, all of the the systems, the in, infrastructure, the fabric, the the thoughts, the feelings that are embedded in our assumed way of being. And you know, you picked up there on 
this need for economic systems change. I'm curious, would you like to expand on that a little bit more? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's something that um, the language around the economy and economics is is often a bit impenetrable. Um, Richard Dennis wrote a wonderful book called Econobabble, where he sort of unpacks a lot of the language tricks that he used in economics to basically keep people away and, and keep people from really understanding what's happening. Um, so that's that's a recommended recommended work. But I guess what I'm thinking about with with systems change is is starting with some of these assumptions. So I'll just there are a few others that I'll just list. We don't have to talk about um, extensively, but again, hopefully feel intuitive to people. So the first one is this idea that you know human beings we're not separate from nature. That's an obvious fact, but our system assumes that we are. Another one is that um, the best way of organizing human beings is through the principle of competition. So basically, we are self-interested beings. That's the way. We're, that's what we're told by our system. Um, and therefore, the best way of organizing is competitively. So our market is structured this way. Businesses compete with other businesses. You know, we we um, we are here. We're out to kind of protect ourselves and protect our families. We are self-interested. Now, that is, of course, part of who we are. And competition as a, as a method of organizing is not in principally bad, but it's not the only way to organize. Um, we know from experiences like last year in the pandemic that you know, helping each other out, altruism, working as a community, working collaboratively is also a huge and important way of organizing individuals in a society. And so we have to move away from the, the thought that the only way of doing this is in competition. So collaboration is an important principle to reintroduce when we're thinking about systems change. You know, another one is, is the feminine and the masculine. You know, we have an entire economic system that's built on the principle that masculine um, values, masculine virtues are the are kind of the most important and they're the dominant one. We all know this to be true, but we also know that it's a huge, um, it's a huge, uh, I was gonna say the, the word waste. It doesn't feel like waste. It's more like it's a huge flaw in the system that we don't also embrace the feminine values that we all have, not just women. It's obviously a, a attributes that men can have as well. And so this idea of rebalancing the feminine and the masculine in our economic system is fundamental um, in thinking about what happens next. And the last one I think is, is also hopefully intuitive to people, which is that this the idea that we measure success only through growth. So the idea that in business, the only way we measure success is the profit margins and, and growth of profit. And as a society, we measure success by the growth of our GDP as a society, as a, as a city or as a, as a community. And again, this is it's not to say that growth is bad, but the idea that you can only measure success through that one um, assumption that growth is good, growth is success, that, that's a real problem. Um, so there's this sort of number of assumptions and I'm sure people who might be listening will have a bunch of other assumptions that we've just sort of taken as true in the systems that we're in, which actually, when you think about it, um, might only be partially true or, or not true at all. Yeah, I think following on the, the the growth aspect of what you're you're talking about there, I guess one of the things that is fascinating and and so critical to regeneration is that it's regeneration from the inside. It, it actually is that ability within ourselves to regenerate, um, to grow and, and evolve and go through those cycles of, you know, of death and and change and letting go, and that has been very much a part of the last uh, 12 months uh, and you know that ripples through all, all aspects of our society but I wonder in the last 12 18 months have there only been any like moments that really stand out for you when those tensions um, between those assumptions have come through 
and it's just kind of hit you in the face and it's been a kick in the guts or it's been, um, you know, enlightening. But just, you know, one of those moments where you're just like, right, here it is. I can see it right in front of me. That's a great question. I feel like there, there were many, many moments over the last couple of years that people have been sort of shocked by, by the system. Uh, and I mean, at a personal level, it feels like, you know, last week here in, in, in where I am in just outside of Melbourne, um, we had uh, a bunch of blackouts, big storm that came through. And it was interesting because before that we had the lockdown, of course, from the pandemic. So we had the lockdown which kept our kids away from school, um, kept them home with us, which of course, you know, is a, um, a reminder of what we all went through last year with the extended lockdown. So we had this sort of reminder of this big shock. The kids went back to school and then the second day back, I got a call at 9.30 in the morning saying, power's out at school, you have to pick your kids up. And so we went from a pandemic lockdown to a climate disaster induced lockdown or, or shutdown of the school. Um, and the kids were home again. And so I had a conversation with mum that night. And I said to her, at any time in my schooling, will you call to pick me up because of a blackout? And the answer was no. So at no time in the entire, like my entire schooling was that a factor for my parents. And yet for us, twice in two weeks, we had the school shut down for two different reasons. So there was this sort of, I guess it's, it's, a, it's a fundamental reminder that the times that we're in, are incredibly fragile and turbulent um, and, and, and very, very different to the times that came just before it. And of course, they're interconnected and we can talk about, you know, how all these, um, these events are obviously deeply connected to a fracturing economic system, to the climate impacts, to all these things that connected up. But it was just one of those, as you say, a potent reminder of, um, of the times that we're in. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? That these are... Uh, windows or metaphor signs of of these things that are happening more broadly around us but they're a very real lived experience and change is hard and it can be beautiful uh, all the same but uh, it, it can be a bit of a roller coaster of, of emotions and there seems to be an art in being able to hold the intensity of some of the the hurt and the pain and the anxiety with some of the issues that we're we're faced with as a society, but also that openness to positivity and, and hope and new growth. Uh, you know, how do you how do you balance the two yourself? Yeah, look, I feel I feel like uh, I've always been drawn towards uh, towards understanding history as a way of uh, managing the present and perhaps envisaging the future. Um, and so I've, you know, I've academically always lent on history as a discipline and, and, and I'm sort of interested and passionate about economic history in particular, uh, in, in terms of understanding, you know, the transitions of our systems and how that's happened in the past and what, you know, how does this current transition that we're in relate to those that have come before it. And I guess I, I, I get, uh, we'll come back to hope because I think hope is, a, is an interesting word that we should, we should perhaps type, um, dissect a little bit. But just in terms of the historical aspect, I, I find um, I find peace, I guess, to some extent in this idea that we've had wave after wave after wave of transformation in our economic history over the last 250, 300 years, you know, since the Industrial Revolution. Change has been absolutely constant. Um, I think it was attributed to Mark Twain, probably wasn't in the end, but the quote was something like, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. 
And that is absolutely true. There's a, there's a wonderful economic historian called Carlotta Perez, who wrote a book called Technological Revolutions. So she talks about these sort of five waves since the Industrial Revolution. First, you have this big, big boom moment at the end of the um, 18th century with the Industrial Revolution. Then you have these steel and railways in the 1830s. You have this big revolution around you know, heavy engineering and electricity in the late 1800s. Then you get this mass production, you know, the auto industry at the start of the 1900s. And then you get the start of the ICT revolution in the 1970s. And you get this sort of feeling, if you map that out, that you have this sort of wave, this pulsating um, nature of our economic history over the last 300 years. And, and those waves are made up of phases. So each one of these disruptions has what she calls an installation period. So there's a new technology, there's this creative disruption, there's new infrastructure, network, huge amount of investment, a big boom of energy, but it also comes with increases of inequality. It comes with concentrations of power because some people take the benefits of that technology and other people don't. There's increasing unemployment because the new technology destroys jobs in other sectors. You often get regional disparity. So you get some regional collapse in some areas, whereas others boom. And that often leads to trust crisis and political crisis and social crisis. And then you get collapse, right? And so she talks about the period in the middle is this period of readjustment. And then you get what she calls a deployment period with the technology. So you've had this kind of boom cycle. And then you get this period where there's new policy settings. There's kind of a, a bit more economic coherence. The policy settings start to make sense again. You get, you know, the new technology that used to be fringe is now completely core. So you get highways being built out. So then suddenly you've got the auto industry has somewhere to drive. So you get this sort of deployment aspect of it. The big companies that went first, the pioneering companies, they start to slow down a little bit and there's a bit of a catch up going on. So the whole economy kind of matures. But then of course, what happens when an economy matures is that productivity starts to slow a little bit. You get wage pressures because people want, so then you get all these other unrest that can start to occur and then the cycle starts again and there's another technology that comes up. And it's not to say that this is a pattern that's always followed, but I guess it's, it's, it's interesting to understand some of, these, um, some of these aspects of previous technological change and previous social change, because then we can start to think about where are we right now? You know, we've had 30 or 40 years of ICT explosion, internet, chips, you know, everything's getting faster. But we've also now had probably since 9-11, a period of collapse and a readjustment. Like it is chaotic. It is like increasing inequality, social inequality. You've got the, obviously the climate impacts are massive. And the question is, can we shift it into a kind of deployment phase or a phase where the world calibrates on the new technology? And so there's this huge question, I think, right now about can we move out of this period of collapse and readjustment into something that feels a little bit more equitable, um, that feels obviously more environmentally sustainable um, and feels more, um, it feels like even just from an energetic perspective, feels calmer. And having said all of that, and apologies if I went on a bit of an um, economic history rant there, the disclaimer on all that, of course, is the climate emergency, which is different. So despite the patterns that we can see over the last 300 years, and, and I think there are some real lessons to learn there, we're now faced with this really significant, unique challenge, um, which, which I think allows us or, or sort of forces us to think a little bit differently um, than just thinking about the patterns of the past. But I guess that's where I find some, some peace. You know, there's been dramatic changes over the last 300 years that as a society we've navigated, sometimes really well and sometimes really painfully. 
Um, but it's our job. That's our work, right? To try and navigate this for our times. Yeah, the way that you were unpacking that, uh, you know, those cycles of economic change, I was actually visualizing uh, the way that ecosystems respond to disturbance and the different um, ways that they move through succession. And then it prompted a thought around the way that First Nations people here in Australia and in, in many other countries have used uh, fire as a creative force. And you end up with this mosaic, you know, these mosaic patterns of different generations and, you know, a relative harmony occurring right throughout, you know, a bioregion bi or between ecosystems. So, you know, I went to the, the Madu in Western Australia, I went to the, the Yolnu in Arnhem Land and the Palawar in, in Tassie. And it actually then made me think, oh, okay, well, there are certain assumptions underneath those cycles of the Western economic growth that maybe need to be questioned because that, you know, that boom and bust flow uh, is maybe a dangerous space to be in and, and forever in this um, trans-Tasman region um, project where we're constantly looking um, towards those First Nations lessons. Uh, but I guess as you were building towards the end there, I sense that maybe there's some the models that are emerging that you're that you're working on that perhaps uh, are moving in this this next wave of innovation and collaboration. Um, you know, what what are you seeing? What are you what are you working on? Yeah, I think it's a really, I mean, it's it's the right instinct, Matt. I feel like there is um, there's such huge challenges in um, kind of the industrial story. Um, and and lessons that must be learned, or we're going to repeat the cycles towards the you know the edge, which I think is represented by the climate emergency, but it manifests as a whole lot of different things in in our social systems and our power structures, etc. Um, and I also think the sort of anchor lesson for me out of all of that is more about um, not having the the sort of rather arrogant modern mindset which is that we are constantly being more enlightened and therefore we don't need to think about the past so i think the 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 lesson for me is is less about um is less about you know uh the primacy of technology or, or anything like that it's more about this this idea that as a society i think we've lost our connection to our history um in the west and so um by reconnecting to what's come before you can start to see which virtues you know, we want to cling to and which ones we want to let go of. Um, you can start to have that kind of cultural conversation as a community. And, and as you say, you know, First Nations people around the world, I think, have that, um, have that aspect in their culture deeply rooted um, of understanding and respecting heritage and history and, and ancestry in a way that um, I think uh, Western society has lost. And that's, rep I mean, we, we, that's not, that's not just me making a kind of general statement. You know, our universities are defunded. Our arts faculties are the first ones to, be, to get defunded. Um, they're the first ones to be ridiculed in our political sphere. Um, you know, the social sector, the social <laughs> are the ones that sort of are seen as not, not having much um, usefulness in our society. And I think that's a great shame. It's a great shame. Um, but I guess, to, I mean, to your question, I think there's, there's the integration of worldviews is something that we have to try and find better ways to do. And I think that's represented to me by, by just this, um, you know, to come full circle by the conversation we started with, which is around how are we organizing? You know, are we organizing based purely on competitive principles or are we organizing also around collaboration? 
And so for me, that's where, um, you know, the, the passion of my work lies, you know, how do we, how do we collaborate better um, as a society, as a community? And I think, you know, one of the ingredients in that is to start thinking more, uh, more maturely or more potently about place. So it's about combining this perspective of what place are we in, how are we connected to that place, um, what do we what do we value about a place? So in, you know, in our conversations, it's often been about Greater Melbourne. You know, what does Greater Melbourne mean for us? Um, what do we want for this place? And by anchoring place at the centre of the conversation, we can then say, well, how do we work together around this place? So collaboration is less sort of a, um, a virtue in and of itself. Off to one side, you can sort of speak about in theoretical terms. It's more practical. It's about how do we work together to create um, to create, create the place that we want to live in for generations. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the, I guess, the anchor principle that I've been thinking about. And, and, and Regen Melbourne is a nice manifestation of that. You know, it's an emerging community of 50 plus organisations and a thousand individuals who are all getting together in various forums to talk about their vision for Melbourne um, and for how we can all work together to, to achieve a more just and sustainable and safe place for our kids and our grandkids and, and generations to come. And in order to have those conversations, we've been using the donut economics methodology, um, which Kate Rayworth um, pioneered a number of years ago out of the UK. And we've been taking that and, and running a kind of process of localizing the model. So out of the, the last six months, we've generated what we're calling the Melbourne donut. So it's a, it's a visual manifestation of, of what we want to achieve for our city. And it includes you know, 14 domains on the inner ring of the donut, which represent the social foundation for our city. These are things like health and education and political voice and art and culture, but also things like income and work. Um, so they, they represent, you know, the baseline that we think everybody in our city needs to achieve in each one of these areas. And then there's an ecological ceiling, which represents the outer ring of this donut, um, which includes things like climate change, but it goes into more specifics around ocean acidification and air pollution and a number of other ecological factors. And together we get this visual image of the safe and just space for Melbourne, which represents the space between the outer ring and the inner ring. And that's where we want to move the city. And that's going to take a hell of a collaborative effort across sectors, across um, elements of the economy in order to achieve. And it's going to take time. But I guess what we've started with this year is just to build the foundations of this network, Regen Melbourne, um, to set us on the path to start doing that together rather than separately. Yeah, and, and the region Melbourne uh, network is just such a great example of those new shoots starting to, to come through, many of which have been connected in, in other ways, but it, it is channeling a lot of creative energy. And uh, I guess it's one that we'll see mature and evolve and, and no doubt become, you know, one of those institutions that are shaping our city, uh, which, is, which is really exciting. And you can see people identifying with that and the narrative starting to influence and shape the way people are relating to Melbourne and their own places within Melbourne. And I, I know as well that those conversations are planting seeds in other regions and in other parts of Australia and, and no doubt in Aotearoa, New Zealand uh, as well. So uh, it, it's interesting because I think the way that regeneration manifests in different places is is unique and maybe that's where i'll just to by way of closing curious if you were to describe in you know in a sentence or in a in a word what would you what would you say is one of the unique characteristics of the 
the spirit or the identity of regeneration in Melbourne itself? What a great question. We're going to need um, a bottle of wine and a campfire, Matt, to have a proper proper conversation about that. Uh, I think you're spot on around the the sort of art form of, of place-based collaboration takes different forms in different places. Like it has to, um, it has to represent the places. Uh, and so this idea of a kind of um, black and white replication of, of, you know, what we've done in Melbourne, for example, to a place like Sydney or Auckland or anywhere else um, is, is problematic. It has to be um, deeply representative of the place. So I think for Melbourne, it starts with uh, an appreciation of the, um, the First Nations culture that has been in this place for a very, very long time, um, tens of thousands of years. And so it has to start there. That, that is what represents, um, when you say, you know, how, do, how does re regeneration represent Melbourne or, or Melbourne represent regeneration? It starts there. Uh, and then I think, you know, it goes to some really interesting attributes that came up in the engagement work that we were doing over the last nine months. You know, there were, there were elements of that process which you know, the process itself was something we, we adapted from other cities around the world, places like Amsterdam and Berlin and Portland and, and, and Oxford in the UK. But the outcomes of the process um, were quite different. You know, we had a huge conversation in our workshops around the value and importance of art and culture to the city. Um, and not just when we were talking about the value of the arts, it came up when we were talking about the health of our city or how empowered we are as a city um, or how enabled we are as a city, how much we can move around our city. It came up in lots of contexts to the point at which it was sort of clear that, you know, the health of our city, the health of the place that we live in, the place that we love, is dependent on the health of our art and culture. They are intrinsically linked. And so, you know, for us, when we created the Melbourne Donut, we had to include, you know, we, we, we were compelled to include an entire segment of our Melbourne Donut dedicated to, the, uh, to art and culture in our city. Now, the next phase of our project, where we're going from here, is to start to define, um, you know, how we think about each one of these segments in a practical way so that we can start to think about measuring progress against each one of these segments, including art and culture. So how do we measure that? How do we think about the value in a way that doesn't kind of bastardize the essence, but still allows us to, to, to work together to make it better, to make it, to make it healthier for our city? So there's some of the elements. And I guess I'm also... Um, this is not, as you would understand, uh, there's not a finished work here. This is, this is a life's work. And so, you know, the Regen Melbourne project is only going to be as powerful as the people who sit around the table and want to engage. Uh, and so that's what I, I guess the invitation is for everybody to step into that, um, to step into the work that we're doing and to come and, and drive it, to lead it from wherever perspective they're coming at it from. This is, um, this is truly a kind of collaborative and participatory exercise. Brilliant. Thank you, Kai. And uh, look forward to that bottle of wine and sitting around a, a campfire to un unpack it more. Just as you were talking, the, uh, the thing that came to, to mind was um, a phrase that Nawi, Dr. Carolyn Briggs, AM Boomerang Alicut Willem Elder um, from Melbourne often uses. And she says, you know, I am Melbourne, we are Melbourne. And I think that's, a, it's just such a clear expression of that interdependency, that reciprocity, and you know, if we if we get kind of into the regen geeky space, it's it's that living systems theory that we are all part of this thing, and and when we 
really lean into that, then I think it opens up a lot of creative potential. And I think Regen Melbourne is just such a great expression of that. So thank you for your time and thanks uh, for those listening in and uh, look forward to unpacking uh, this conversation further. It is an evolving one, but it's through leaders uh, such as Kai and, and so many other collaborators that are working in these spaces that we're able to start embracing these shifts small and subtle and significant over time that will layer up um, but uh, recognizing that uh, there is that balance of the the hardship the anxiety as well as the joy and the hope that go along with it so thank you kai and uh, look forward to uh, picking up that that conversation more well, bye, bye.